0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. Verse 11 is where we're at. In a message entitled, um, Living for Forever. Now, we all know, as Christians, that we are going to live forever. And that gives us a great comfort, doesn't it? I mean, we think about through the hard times or through the difficulty. We're like, man, you know what? This is, this is as bad as it's ever gonna be. This is the closest to hell we're ever going to be. And we haven't looked forward to. We all know that everything works together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We have these, the sure hope of a resurrection in our heart. And so the, the, the idea of eternity um, is, is a comforting thing that carries us through these difficult times, right? And no matter what we're going through, we know, hey, I belong to Jesus. He's going to be with me forever, and and it does comfort us when we have believers, friends, relatives, or or someone close to us that that because of um, you know because of circumstances in life, illness, or whatever that they end up in the hospital, and we know that their time might be short. If they're a believer, that gives us comfort too to know that they're going to be with the Lord. In fact, sometimes we even pray that the Lord would take them. Have you ever been in that situation where you've seen somebody, maybe 10 years of Alzheimer's and they're just getting, they're deteriorating, but they're just hanging on. And, and it's a blessing when they actually pass on. If it's been a long thing like that, And you know, that can be a, that can be a thing. <clears throat> but what I wanted to talk about today is something very different. It's not living forever, but living for forever. Because I think that it's, it's a reality that oftentimes when we get to that point in our life, and, and we don't all get the, the benefit of, of dying in our sleep in the middle of the night. How many of you guys want to just die in your sleep in the middle of the night? And, you know, you're dreaming and the next thing you know, you're looking at Jesus and you're like, hey, that was easy. Um, <clears throat> you know, that would be great. But, but not all of us get the benefit of that. And sometimes we will convalesce. Sometimes we will get a diagnosis and find ourselves in a hospital for a week or a month or a year um, before we go. And, and, and heaven forbid we find ourselves in that place and we're like, what did I do with my life? Or, or, or to think, to have the regret of, of, man, I didn't spend my life the way that I thought that I'd have more time. I didn't spend my life the way that I wanted to. This became a huge reality for a young man about 30 years old. He was in Forbes magazine, an up-and-coming star in the financial community, and and, and and was making millions and was on par to make multiple hundreds of millions of dollars for himself. And he was a Christian, but he found out he had brain cancer, <coughs> excuse me, which landed him in the hospital, and and ultimately gave him just weeks to live, inoperable, just weeks to live. And his friend was next to him in bed, and he's like, man, it's just so sad, you had so much potential, man, you were a rising star. And, And this is what he said to his friend, he said, I wasted my life. He says, "All that, none of that money, none of that success, none of that matters because I didn't do anything for Jesus." And he says, "I, I always thought I would have more time to do that." Now, I, and maybe that's maybe that's being dramatic, and I'm sure to him that was a huge reality. You know, he was a believer, so praise the Lord, he was going to go be with the Lord. But do we want to be in that place where we find ourselves questioning what my existence was all about? I think sometimes we do find ourselves doing that when, when something radical happens in our lives. You know, the loss of somebody close to you or, or a medical diagnosis or something like that kind of shocks us away from the, the day-to-day and all the things that we've been living for and makes us realize, wait a minute, eternity is a lot longer than just this moment we have here. And maybe there is something, maybe there is something that I should live my life for beyond just what's here and now. Maybe I do want to live my life in the light of eternity. James, in this book, has given us a lot. James just gives us strong medicine. He gives us literally the unfiltered word of God, doesn't he? I mean, he just kind of dumps it on us and just like, ah! And he's like, it's okay, it'll we'll stop hurting in a minute. You know, he just, he, he he just rips the band-aid off, he just tells it like it is, and, and, and that's refreshing to us. Um, but, but he gives us some amazing clarity on this subject. Because I, I think we all have houses and jobs and bank accounts and cars and even some toys. And that can be okay, but in some circumstances it, it isn't okay. And, and James kind of, he pulls, he pulls back the layers and kind of shows us what... what um, we're really doing, and are we living for eternity, or are we just living for what's temporal? And so if you'll stand with me, James chapter 4, James chapter 4, James by the Spirit of God says, verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him, who knows, or to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of of the earth, waiting patiently for it until um, it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And Father, we thank you for this text, Lord, that we're looking at today. And as challenging as it is, it's probably very important for us to pay attention, to give heed to the things that James has written to us here. Help us to rightly divide it, Lord. I pray that as we look at it, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what your spirit is speaking to us, Lord, that you would change our perspective and give us a fresh view of eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week... We talked about having a different perspective, uh, having God's perspective of life rather than our own. And, and, and this certainly is, is kind of along that same line. Remember that James encouraged us in James chapter 4 verse 8 to draw near to God and he will draw near to you, right? That If we draw near to God, he's going to draw near to us. And that's really, if you were, if you were to say, what's the Christian life all about? You know, at at the moment that we're saved, what are we to do after that point? You could sum it up in that simple statement, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what we're here for. And and James now helps us to take our attention from the earthly things. And and this is what he's going to be doing as we look at this section, taking our attention off the earthly things and putting our, our attention on forever right? To, to look at things from God's perspective. And so what he starts out with is taking our eyes off of others. That's number one. We're going to have four points. So if you're taking notes, you can write those down. Number one is taking our eyes off of others. And so verse 11, he says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So what is he saying here? Speaking evil of your brother is the same as not forgiving your brother their trespasses. Remember, that's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins as we forgive others who have sinned against us. And then Jesus warns us there in Matthew 6, if you do not forgive your brother, neither will the Lord forgive you. That's kind of a, a daunting thing. And so why is it that way? I mean, what is this about um, not forgiving somebody and, and dealing with that, um, that problem of, of bitterness and, and whatever? What is that in relation to the law and judging the law and all the things that James is saying here? It's actually not that tricky. The reality is, is that Jesus forgave us of everything, right? And, and you think about what Jesus has forgiven you of. You know which commandments did you break that Jesus needed to forgive you? If you look at the Ten Commandments, the law, you know, that Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Thou shalt um, not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Thou shalt honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Honor your mother and your father. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not murder. And you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. So you have Ten Commandments. And out of those ten commandments, which ones have you broken? Well, if you understand the law and you, you've looked at the law, you know that you are guilty of it all. In fact, James even told us already in James chapter two, verse ten, if we if we if we um, have broken one law, we're guilty of it all. But if you look at what what the law is, and and you look at it in, in light of scripture, in light of what Jesus said about it, if you hate your brother, you're angry with your brother without cause, you're in danger of judgment you're in danger of hellfire, that you realize that anger is, mur- is like murder, it's murder of the heart, that, that if I look upon a woman with lust, I've committed adultery, and we find ourselves guilty before the law of God. And so who am I to judge another person when I myself stand guilty, stand condemned? And yet what's more is if I myself stand guilty, and condemned, but have been forgiven everything, you know, I remember as a young man, I used to be offended a lot. I used to be offended when people took the Lord's name in vain, and I'd let them know about it. You know, I, I was I was offended by a lot of things that people did, even though true years prior to that, I did all those things. Right. So it only took me two years from becoming a complete heathen to now I've been now I'm a complete hypocrite, <laughs> completely self-righteous, and I was I was at my um, at my wife's. But she wasn't my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend or my fiance. I was at her, the place she was staying. She was staying with an older couple, and I was sitting in, in, her, in the chair waiting for her. I, I didn't realize this was going to be a theme of our marriage, that I'd be waiting for her. But um, I was waiting for her to get ready, and so I'm sitting there in this chair, and I was, it, was, it was where Sam, the lady that she was living with, it was where she did her Bible study, and I looked over, <coughs> and there was this little box sitting next to her chair, and I opened it up. And I noticed it was scriptures, those little cards with scripture on them in there. And I pulled out the first one, and this is what it said. It says, Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have they which love thy law, for nothing shall offend them. That's the New King James Version. But in, in the King James, it said, nothing shall offend them. And I thought, well, I'm always offended. I, I'm always offended by everything. I'm stumbled by what you said. I'm, you know, that's what it uses here, that nothing will stumble them. I'm stumbled by what you said. You know, you use the Lord's name in vain, or you, you you know, did that, or you're talking about something you shouldn't be talking about, even though they maybe weren't a believer. And and I, I realized as I sat and pondered that verse, wait a minute. If I know God's law, and I know that I'm guilty of God's law, then who am I to stand in judgment over someone else who's broken God's law? Should I not rather have compassion on them? Shouldn't I realize that this is somebody who, who has been taken captive by the devil to do his will as I had been rather than being this judge? And so this is what James is talking about. He's saying, hey, you know, you, somebody who is under this, this same curse of the law who's now been set free by, this save, salva- <coughs> by the salvation of Jesus Christ, who are we to be judges over people? Now, this is kind of a, an interesting thing. <clears throat> Verse 12, he says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy, and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And and there's one lawgiver. It's not you. (laughs) It's not me. It's God. Can we stand in the place of God? We should seek to be helpful to other people and kind to other people rather than a judge over other people. It's, It's very easy to let ourselves fall into that trap. Now, I, I will say this, when somebody does something that offends you, there, there is instruction for that in the, in the Bible as well. And sometimes, you know, you're going to run into Christians, people who say they're Christians, and, and we're, we're never to judge anybody's motives, and that's really what James is talking about here. We can't judge somebody's motives or, you know, tell that, you know, this is why they did what they did. And certainly we shouldn't talk about other people behind their back and, and, um, and gossip about them. But what he's saying here in, in, in this section is that we're not to judge their motives, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be aware of what fruit is coming from somebody's life. So if somebody is, is in sin, then the Bible tells us that we should go to them as a brother alone, right? not after I talk to 10 people about it, right? but go to them alone that I might gain the brother. Right. My whole purpose and intention in doing that is to go to them that they might repent and that we can just move on. Right. But if they don't repent, then I bring a witness and go to them and tell them their fault again. If they don't repent with the witness, then I take it to the church. Right. And then talk to them. Maybe the pastor will talk to them or whatever. But, but there are certain people who just won't repent, right? And, and so we're to judge the fruit. And there might be an occasion where we want to warn somebody about somebody, but it doesn't mean that we're going to trash their character or, or go beyond what we should. Um, but I think there is a time for confrontation. But there's even a greater thing. And that is that moment where I realize that as somebody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, that I have to forgive people who have hurt me or offended me. And so rather than standing as a judge and saying, I could never forgive you, you you know you don't deserve my forgiveness, I have to humble myself and forgive. Now, I, I don't say that lightly, and I know <clears throat> that forgiveness does not come easy, nor does it come cheap, because there is a huge investment oftentimes that we make in anger or frustration we have towards another person, and sometimes that has to come unraveled a little bit. And as I talk to um, the Lord about the person who I'm offended by or the bitterness that I'm holding in my heart, what becomes necessary is to take that bitterness and to confess it as sin before the Lord and allow (coughs) allow the Lord to forgive me, to receive forgiveness for that, but then also to receive the grace that's necessary after that and to allow the Lord to put forgiveness in my heart for the person that I don't want to forgive. Now this is a simple process um, in in uh, you know steps you know confess my bitterness as sin ask the Lord to put His forgiveness in my heart and then to act out in forgiveness towards that person even though I don't maybe feel it yet he he oftentimes will put the feelings there for forgiveness um, it, it comes pretty expensive because I am invested in bitterness aren't I? I mean, if I'm angry with something that somebody has done to me, and I find myself frustrated with them, or I find myself angry with them, it, 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 it's, it's an investment of my time and my energy to not forgive them, because if I forgive them, then they win. Anybody ever felt like that? That's it's a dangerous place to be, because they've done something wrong against me, and now I'm on the wrong side of God because of that. And so how do I deal with that? Well, It's simple. I confess it as sin. I ask the Lord to put forgiveness in my heart for them. And when I do that, I'm set free. And that's not something that we expect, is it? We don't expect to be set free, but that's what happens. In fact, the reality is, is by forgiving them, what ends up happening is now as I've forgiven them for what they've done to me, they no longer have any power over me. Because as long as I'm bitter, I'm drinking poison, expecting the other person to die, right? But as soon as I'm free from it, then I no longer am bound by that thing that they did to me, and I'm set free. And so, you know, it's important for us, as as we look at this, to realize that Jesus has forgiven us all, and he's even forgiven them, and that he has forgiveness for them, put into our hearts. And that's just something that you have to to believe. You have to to receive it by faith as you confess your sin. The second thing that James tells us is, uh, is to take our eyes off of this world onto forever when it comes to our plans. That's the second thing, giving up our plans to God. He says in verse 13, come now, You who say today and tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? Listen to this. What is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away? That's what's known as clarity about your life. What is your life? Well, I got big things going on. Really? Isn't your life just a vapor? That's there for a, 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 a brief moment and then vanishes away. Wow, all that I've invested in this is just. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But you now, by your boasting and arrogance, or now, now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is, listen to that, evil. It's evil. It doesn't candy coat it. He says that boasting in what you're going to do, what you're planned, how you're going to make it happen, it's evil. It reminds me of what Jesus said. He talked about the man who had a big haul of a crop and he's like, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. And Jesus says, you fool, don't you know that your life will be required of you even this night? He did get to die in his sleep. (laughs) Who knows where he woke up? but we don't know right we don't know how long we have we don't know what our plans are going to amount to and heaven forbid we find ourselves at the end saying hey i didn't do what i felt like god wanted me to do with my life what a tragedy would that be and so as we think about what he's saying here we have to think about what are we planning and we see, we may see planning for the future and making plans, making a profit, as a great thing. After all, doesn't Dave Ramsey tell us that we need a plan for the future and be careful with our finances and store some away and all that? And doesn't Solomon say the same thing? Right? The righteous man provides for his family up into the third and fourth generation. So yes, I think that planning and. Making a profit and those types of things can be a good thing. But they can also be, as James says, an evil thing. What what James is pointing out is the error of making our plans when it just is arrogant boasting. When we say, this is how I'm going to live my life, and this is where I'm going, and this is my five-year thing, and this is what I'm going to do. It's arrogant boasting. And what changes that? God's will. God's will. You see the difference. I mean, it's a very small seeming difference, but it's it's the whole the whole world of a difference. Rather than saying this is what I'm going to do, we say simply, if it's God's will, then I'm going to do this or that. I'd like to do this, Lord willing. Or maybe it's one of those situations where it's like, this is really what I want, but not my will. Your will be done. And sometimes that comes with a great sacrifice. It would seem. Until you step back. And you say, here's my grand plan. And here's God's grand plan. Here's my life that's but for a vapor. And here's God's eternal plan that's forever. When you really weigh them out, you know, like, which one's better? I guarantee you... If you were able to step back and see the outcome of everything, you'd be like, okay, there's not even a contest there. My plan versus God's plan. And yet in the midst of it, sometimes when you're so close to it, you're like, I really want to marry her. I really want this for myself. I really want that thing. And I'm going to die if I don't get it. God's saying, just be patient. I have something far better. Far better. And and even though it may look like suffering and horrible things, it may look like that. But in the light of eternity, it doesn't. That's a difficult thing for us to grasp sometimes. You have to realize that we have to always say, not my will, but your will be done. And, and, and I think we're guilty of that. I think we do a lot of things without really consulting God. Oh well, I'm going to buy that new car. Or I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm going to get married. You know, I, you know I'm going to say yes. I, I was kind of refreshed yesterday after service uh, last night. I was talking to a young gal, and she's like, I found out that my boyfriend friend is going to propose to me next week. And that's a good to have a heads up on that, huh? And so she was really struggling with that because she feels like God wants her to do ministry, but she also knows what the obligations of a wife and kids are. And, and, and she, doesn't want to be, she doesn't want to be outside of the will of God. You know, I don't have any doubt that the Lord's going to guide her in the right decision when it comes to that. But how many of us don't even consider that when it comes to, oh, that cute guy said this to me or that beautiful woman, you know, said yes when I asked her to marry me and didn't even really console God. Is this what you really want me to do? Is this how you really want me to spend my life? Or do you have something different for me? Not my will, but your will be done. And whatever you choose, I know is going to be best. Because no matter how worthy a cause it is evil, because we didn't ask God's will. We just made our own plans. All such boasting, he says, is evil. It's sin. Why is it sin? Because it falls short of the glory of God. All of sin and falling short of the glory of God—that's what sin is—is is falling short of God's glory. Anything less than perfection is sin. How do we not sin? We find ourselves drawing near to God and he's drawing near to us and his will and his plan start to work out in our lives. And he causes us not to sin. He makes us to not sin because we're following his plan and not our own. We, and we have our plans, don't we? I and mean, we have our financial plans. We have our five-year plan, maybe. We have our, maybe it's a roadmap for ministry, you know, what we're going to do. Certainly, I get a lot of mail about stuff like that in the, in the mail. They have this perfect plan for, you know, you follow these five steps and you can have this type of a church and, you know, see numbers grow and all those things. And we tend to ignore all that stuff around here. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny how, um, you know, you can do those patterns and you can go through the jump through all the hoops to, to accomplish what you know is going to be a predictable outcome when it comes to church. Or you can just say, okay, God, whatever you want. Whatever you want. That's what I want. What, whatever, what do you want us to do next, God? Do you want us to do this? And, and that's what we do as a, as a ministry team, is we're constantly laying our plans before the Lord. Lord, is, is this what you want us to do? Lord, what should we do to reach this community? What should we do? And, and the Lord opens doors, and we walk through them as he opens them. You know, this church looks very different than, than the way I thought it would be. And, and I think that's good. I remember thinking, you know, kind of building in my mind the perfect church. This, I like what these churches do over here, but I like that. And I'm gonna, when, I, when I start a church, it's going to be like this. And, and you know, as, as the Lord was drawing me closer to that time to start a church, I had 10 years to think about it because the Lord called me, told me I was going to be a pastor, and he had 10 years of stuff to work out in me before I could even be ready. And, and, and as I'm waiting and ready and kind of making plans, you know, I, I was sitting in a, in a sermon one time, my pastor, he said, you know, this church isn't, isn't my church. It doesn't matter what we do. It's, it's what the Lord wants us to do, not what I want to do. And he says, we have a lot of ministries here that I would never do. And looking back at our church now, like we have a lot of ministries here that I would never start. I mean, think about the, the school, for instance. I would never start a school. There's no way. I would never want, I don't want anything to do with the school. And yet, as the Lord presented it, it was so Him, you know, and it ended up being such a blessing to the school to move up here, and it became such a blessing to the church to be a part of it, and the Lord just married us together, and it it became such a beautiful thing. I knew it was going to be a lot of drama, but honestly, it was a lot less drama than I thought it would be, and the challenges have actually been exciting to see what God's doing and and how He's working things out, you know, because it's all God's work. It's not our work. It's what God wants, None of this is about me. And, and your life isn't even your own. You were bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. Your life is his. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So James here talks to us about the sin of omission. You know, we, when we, we just make our own plans, we just do what we think we want to do. And we don't do what we know we should do. A sin of com- commission is to commit a sin, you know, to do something you know is wrong, A sin of omission is to not do what you know is the right thing to do. So maybe there's no action when it comes to a sin of omission. And that's what he's talking to us about here. And he he told us what it is. And he told us what we should be doing. Remember, he told us that we need to seek God for his wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. But let him ask in faith. He tells us that we need to humble ourselves that we need to have grace on others, that we shouldn't show partiality, that we need to seek God's will for our plans. Anything less than this is sin. Again, because sin means to miss the marker. It means to not reach perfection. I want my life to be completely in line with God's will and plan for me. Number three, <clears throat> the third thing that we need to take our eye off of and put our eyes on forever is the uncertainty of riches. This is the next thing he says. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Um, and, and so when you think of rich in their society, just to give you an idea of what a rich person, um, oftentimes somebody who'd be considered rich, what that would mean. It would mean that they have more than one set of clothing. You know, they have five or so shirts or cloaks to wear. You know, they have time to wash their, their clothes before they have to wear them again type of a thing. Um, they have plenty of food to eat. Like they they don 't have to worry about where the next meal's going to come from. they have cattle and, and herds and and maybe some property or something like that but but this is kind of what he sees doing he 's talking about these rich people. He says, your riches are corrupted. the idea of, is rotten um, And mean they 're probably talking about their grain. your garments are moth eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. you have heaped up treasure in the last days. So obviously God hates the rich. So we're going to have the ushers come forward to unburden you um, from all of your, (laughs) just kidding. You can put it in the agape box. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. No, whenever we come to across the pastures like this, we can't understand, we can't misunderstand what he's trying to say here. Um, Because You know, certainly it would be easy just to make a blanket statement, and and James is using a stereotype, but there's a lot of context that goes into this, not only context of the Bible, but the context of what he's talking about within these passages, and and we'll unpack that here as we dig down into it a little bit. Um, We have to look at the entirety of Scripture when it comes to this subject, and one of those passages that we would look at is Psalm 112. And in other places where God says that wealth can be a blessing that the Lord gives to someone who obeys his commandments. Also Deuteronomy 8.18 that tells us you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And so there is, there is a blessing on God's people sometimes in order to obtain wealth or to do well in business. But through the scriptures, there's Psalms like Psalm 49.6 that warn us against the uncertainty of riches. And, and, and that's, that's a pretty um, clear, clear picture within scripture, that we can't trust in the riches of this life or the things that this life has to provide. We, we, we shouldn't ever trust in that. And the second we do, we find ourselves in big trouble. Now, I, I know that there's the opposite. The converse of it is, you know, Habakkuk, where he's like, you know, why do the rich prosper? You know, and this is kind of a theme throughout the Bible. You know, why do the rich prosper and the, and the righteous suffer? You know, which is, is often the case. Sometimes <coughs> people who follow the Lord, you know, look at the prophets. They're they're killed, they're they're tortured, they, they go hungry, you know, and and, th- and that's just the reality of life. And so sometimes we have that that angst, you know, how come I'm serving you and I'm 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 suffering, I'm struggling, I don't have the money I need. And and of course we realize that the Lord allows those things in our lives because those things, you know, the trials bring, you know, patience and, and build our faith and, and also draw us close to God. It's it's through the suffering that we're taken into the presence of God, right? Isn't it oftentimes that that we find ourselves in the worst trial of our lives when we decide in that moment to turn to God and to cry out to God that we we find ourselves closer to God than we ever thought possible? And so these things are are blessings to us. And as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, that this is the only opportunity, this life we have now, this vapor of a time that we have now, is the only opportunity we get to suffer. It's the only time we actually get to experience suffering and that suffering that would draw us into the presence of God that will build our character and help us to live more of a life of faith. And as one of the prophets recognized, as he, he talked about why did the righteous uh, you know, prosper and the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, he, he says, this is how I felt until I went down to the temple of the Lord and I saw their end. Because again, this is the closest to heaven they're ever going to get. And this is the closest to hell we're ever going to get. You remember the rich young ruler, how hard for it is, is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. This man came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God or inherit eternal life? And Jesus pointed out something right away that was pretty amazing. He said, why do you call me good? There's only one good, that is God. What was Jesus saying? Are you, are you recognizing that I'm God? Is that what you're recognizing? Because nobody would argue that Jesus wasn't good, right? And if Jesus is good, then he is God. Because there's none good. And and the guy should have stopped right there. He should have said, okay, I guess I can't. But Jesus says, what are the, he says, um, keep the commandments. And the man says, which ones? And Jesus lists off the six, actually five of the six that deal with man. Honor your mother and father, don't kill, don't lie. And, and, and the guy says, he says, I have kept them from my youth, and Jesus says, "Then one thing you lack. To be perfect, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me." And the man went away sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter ten, verse twenty-four. Jesus said, "Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God." In Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, he said it like this, And Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, that's an interesting statement because some people, you know, liberal theologians have kind of said, well, no, there was an ancient gate in Israel that was, you know, called the camels, the eye of a needle, rather, the eye of a needle, and they would get the camel down on their knees and they'd take all the packs off of them and they'd push them through and, and a camel could only go through that gate if he didn't have any burdens on him. Okay, first of all, my first question is, is why would they have that gate and try to put camels through it? They never would. Second question is, how is that impossible? Because with men, it is impossible, Jesus said. No, he's talking about a literal sewing needle. He's talking about a camel passing through a sewing needle which would come out the other side as juice. Camel juice, right? But no, he's not talking about it coming out as juice. He's saying it will pass through the eye of a needle and be a camel on the other side of that. Impossible with men. But with God, it's possible. In fact, it's true when it comes to any of us entering the kingdom of God. With men, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And yet what he's trying to tell us is that riches have their way of working their way into our heart to where they become God instead of God himself becoming God in our lives. And how easy it is for us to replace God with, with material possessions. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, <coughs> Paul gives Timothy some clarity when it comes to what a, how a pastor should look at the things of this world. And he says in verse 7, he says, "...for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out." "...having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation and snare, and to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness." You don't have to be rich to fall into the temptation. Anyone who loves money falls into the temptation. You know, even if you don't have two dimes to rub together, and you're consumed with the thought of being rich or having money, it's just as is damning to you. That's why it's so dangerous, <clears throat> because wealth can give you the false impression that you are secure. But if you understand anything about economics and world economies and how quickly things can crash and turn around. We've experienced a small amount of that back in '08, did didn't we? But it can get a lot worse than that. Look at what happened right before World War II in Germany. One day, 700,000 Marx wouldn't even buy a loaf of bread. And in fact, I heard a story of a man who sold his restaurant, he, him and his wife retired, sold their restaurant for 700,000 marks, and the next day they couldn't even buy a piece of bread with it. How quickly things can turn around, how quickly things can become unstable, and I think all of us are, are kind of like, are we headed for that in our economy? I mean, I, and, and not, I'm not trying to be political, but what does it mean when $2 trillion are pulled out of the budget just to give to everybody for free. I mean, what does that mean to the the economics? Have you noticed that the price of gold is really high? Have you notice that it's ridiculously high. I mean, it's never been as high as it is right now. The gold is so high, no, it's not. gold staying where it's always been. You realize that? Gold is the same price it's always been. It's just the dollar fell to the bottom. And when you see gold go up, you know the dollar is down in the in the dumps. And that's that's a scary thing. There's an old Quaker saying, Tell me what you need and I will tell you how you can live without it. <laughs> and and they're not being funny by that. They're, they're serious about it. Corey Tamboon said it a different way and from a very different perspective. She said that Jesus she says that you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Again, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The truth is, the only thing that can truly give us security, true provision, true fulfillment in life is Jesus Christ. Draw near to God. <clears throat> Abraham is another example of this. Rich man had, he could pull out 600 servants, right, and, and send them out to war. These are 600 servants in his household that are ready for battle. Could you imagine? I don't have one servant. I like, <laughs> have a couple of boys. I, I would say my, my kids would probably think I have six servants. But, I mean, at the end of the day, Abraham was a rich man. Flocks and herds. And, and yet he never built himself a house. Isn't that odd? A.W. Tozer points out an interesting thing. He says, wasn't this poor man rich? Because Abraham possessed nothing. His only possession was God himself, and nothing else mattered in his life. And so he would go around living in tents as a sojourner, looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. James rebukes them for storing up treasure in the last days. The idea is they're hoarding more than they could ever use or pass on to their children to use. Or taking more than they need when supplies are scarce. You guys experienced this lately? I mean, over the last several months, you know, there was that time at the beginning when there was no toilet paper in the world, right? I remember we, we didn't really watch the news and we, were, you know, we didn't hear about the toilet paper scare or whatever, so my wife went to Costco, like she normally does, to shop for our family of eight people. We're out of toilet paper at home, or like on the last roll or so, and she goes into Costco expecting to get her big pallet of toilet paper, and she goes in and she says, where's the toilet paper? He's like, oh, we got eight pallets of it, or whatever it was, six pallets of it, or something like that. I don't remember the number, but it was a lot, and it was gone in an hour. And she was like, what? Nobody needs that much toilet paper. Which she was right. And so we, we didn't have toilet paper. And so we're at home. And, and this is like, this is, this is a crisis, right? In my house, we're like the last two toilet paper rolls <coughs> in the house just got put on. And I just happened to be going to buy mart for whatever reason. And I walked to the back. And they, I don't know if they, if they normally carry toilet paper, but they have this little area of maybe like scarce supplies that they were selling. It was like limit one per family, you know, one per person or whatever. And I went up there and there was a roll of Scott toilet paper. The worst toilet paper known to mankind. A thousand sheets in a roll. It's like, it's like uh, sandpaper on a roll, you know, or like thinner than thin, you know, like whatever. But it was a blessing from the Lord. You know, I remember seeing that. I was like, oh, I can, toilet paper. You know, I hadn't seen this in a while. We're out at home almost. And, and so I was, I was just like, oh, this is amazing. Thank you, Lord, for this horrible toilet paper. So happy. And I was. And so we were able to take it home and take the roll, half roll off one thing and put it in the other bathroom so it won't run out there and, and stick it in. And, and, and we had toilet paper for a little while. But as that started to run out... You know, every time we went to the store, we're looking, it's gone, you know. I did go with a friend to his storage unit. No names, I'm not going to tell you who it was. Shame on them. But I went to their storage unit, and I like, there was all this toilet paper in their storage unit. I was like, what are you doing? You have three people in your family. Come on, you don't need that much toilet paper. Anyway, I I went to that little pharmacy. They just opened up the pharmacy across from the, the elementary campus. And I felt bad for them because they'd open up, you know, right as COVID started. And I was like, oh man, those poor people. So I'm going to go in there and buy something just to help them. And I went in there and it was like there was this rainbow Ah, and uh, like a package of Charmin. I was like, Charmin, are you kidding me? It's like the opposite end of the, I mean, the Lord provided the, the sandpaper, but now he's provided Charmin, you know? Sometimes with the Lord we feast and sometimes we famine. But you know what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was like one of those miracle things. I felt like we were living hand to mouth or hand to something. And now I have a roll of a a package, a whole package of Charmin. I could stock up my whole bathrooms with Charmin. He's saying don't hoard when it comes to those things. It shows a lack of trust in the Lord. You know, nobody ever, as it's been said, probably, I think, <laughs> attributed to great glory, but nobody, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. And when people go and rob graves of those Egyptians, there's treasure in them still. Because thousands of years after they died, they didn't spend any of it or use any of the treasure that was in there. Now, we, we can try to store treasure. We can try to take treasure with us. You know, honestly, the only way to take treasure with heaven is to give it away to the Lord, right? But we can try to do it. There was a man who was on his deathbed, and he called in his doctor, his pastor, and his lawyer. And he said to them, you know, I'm going to die soon. I want you to take, (coughs) I'm going to give each of you an envelope with $100,000 cash in it. At my funeral, I want you to, to go forward, and I just want you to put the envelope into my casket with me, so I'll have some money to spend in the afterlife. And they were like, okay. So we gave them the money, and sure enough, the funeral came, and each of them went forward, and they placed their envelope in the, in the casket. And a week later, the three got together for lunch, and they were talking it over, and the pastor says, you know, I, I really just need to confess. I didn't put the full 100000 in the casket. I only put 60000 in the casket. I, I, I gave the 40000 to an orphanage in, in Africa for the kids. The doctor looked down, he's like, you know me too. He says, I actually took 50,000 of it and gave it to my research for cancer. The lawyer looked at the two men, he says, I'm disgusted with you both. I put a check for the full amount in that envelope and I put it in the casket. <laughs> Verse four, he says, indeed, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out to you. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears, <coughs> the ears, Of the Lord of Sabaoth. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but you have lived in the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. So living in a wealthy country and living in luxury as we do in our country, this should be a little concerning to us. So what is he trying what is he saying here? In Luke chapter 16, you, you remember the story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. Of course, the rich man fared sumptuously every day, you know, wearing purple garments, and he was, he was just super wealthy. And outside of his gate sat a poor man, a beggar, Lazarus, who didn't even have, <clears throat> he, was, he was lame, and he couldn't even get up, and he had sores, and the dogs would come and lick him and, and lick his sores. And he just desired To eat the crumbs, the leftovers that fell from the rich man's table, which it doesn't say he got to do. And this rich man would go and pass by him every day. Now, in in Israel, they had this welfare system that if you were um, poor, then you could go work for food. You know, you, you didn't have to hold up a sign that says, I will work for food. You actually just went and did it. And you go out to the fields and you would glean behind the gleaners because they weren't, they weren't to take everything. They were to leave some behind. They weren't to go through their field a second time. They were to allow the poor to come and glean the fields behind the reapers. And then they wouldn't even glean the corners of their field. So you could actually go out into the corners and glean. And, and that way you could eat and feed your family even though it was meager you had something to eat. But if you were lame or blind or halt or withered or whatever, you had some disease and you couldn't work, then you would beg. And that's how you made a living. And, and it was incumbent upon the people of Israel to give alms to the poor. That is just It was just the law. They had to do that. And so that people wouldn't starve. And yet here's this man who obviously wasn't getting proper medical care he had malnutrition. He's, he's sick and he's dying outside of this man's house. And this man's faring sumptuously every day and not giving him the basic necessities that he needed, even though he walked past him probably every day. He probably maybe he flipped him a, a little bit here and there, but he didn't really take care of this person who was truly in need. And it says that both of them died. And Lazarus was carried to Abraham's and laying on Abraham's bosom. And, and the other man was in torment in Hades. And so you have this, you know, contrasting situation. And the man who is in torment cries out to Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip, send him to help me, right? I didn't help him in his life, but you send him to help me dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in torment in this heat. And he says, no, there's a, there's a chasm fixed between us. Nobody can cross it. And he says, then send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers that they might not come because I'm tormented in this heat. And he says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Oh no, but if one went back from the dead, they would surely listen. he says, if they, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if one rises from the dead. What an wow. indictment. Now, <clears throat> what's going on in that story there in Luke chapter 16? Well, just to give you an idea, there were, um, in that time, there were two places where people went when they died. One was torment, which was what we might call hell, you know, kind of erroneously, but it was called that hell. And, and the other side was paradise. Now, some people have called this Abraham's bosom, and I think that's erroneous, because I think he literally was laying his head on Abraham's bosom, um, and Abraham was comforting him. But he was in this place of paradise, Now, remember when Jesus died on the cross, he told the thief next to him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise, right? But then when he rose the third day and he was with Mary, Mary said, you know, Mary gave him a hug and he says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. So he wasn't talking about heaven. He was talking about hell. But in hell, there was two different, or Hades or the grave, there was two different compartments. One where the faithful dead went, and one where the unrighteous dead went. Now, the place where the unrighteous dead is being filled up even today. But on the other side, these were people who, who had not yet had their sins paid for, who were waiting for Jesus to come and die upon the cross. Remember what Jesus said in, in John chapter 3, verse 13. He says, No one has ever ascended to the Father except he who came down from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So nobody's ever gone to heaven except me, and I'm here, but I'm in heaven, type of thing. But anyway, Jesus, Jesus makes it very clear that nobody's ever gone to heaven until Jesus went down to them and he proclaimed liberty to the captives and rose from the grave, and then everyone got to go to heaven, all those people who were waiting there until their sins were paid for. And now... They're in heaven, and now for us, our promise is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you die now, your spirit goes to heaven. And then someday, with trumpet sound, when Jesus comes back, your body is going to meet with your spirit. It's going to be transformed into, into a glorious body, and the resurrection will take place. But that's for the day of the resurrection. But anyway, so these people are in these two different places. And 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 now Jesus is kind of um he's telling this story about how this whole thing went down. And and really at the end of the day, it comes to the, down to the fact that this man who was rich, again, that's the closest to heaven he's ever going to be. He's faring sumptuously every day. And yet he had no concern for anybody but himself. And the story is, the moral of the story is, is that. As God has placed us on this earth, it's our responsibility to help other people out, to not make this all about me. Because I think oftentimes when we do a transaction with somebody or or somebody does something for us, he talks about those who mowed the fields and they they didn't pay him proper wages. It's crying out and the Lord of hosts is hearing the cry of the wages that you held back by fraud. He's saying, these are the things that the Lord pays attention to because the transaction is never between me and you. It's between me and you and God. God is always watching. And so I have a decision to make when it comes to my finances and the things I have and and the people that I see that are in need. And, And that is this. Am I going to do what I feel like the Lord has called me to do? Or am I going to worry about myself? Because I'm thinking I have to provide for myself. Or do I really believe that God's going to provide for me and that if I take care of them, then God's going to take care of me? See, it's a different way to think altogether. I, I love the book Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret where Hudson Taylor oftentimes would give away his last pound or his last shekel to, or whatever, whatever measure of money they have there in England, but he gave his last amount of money to somebody knowing that he, by virtue of that, had no money to, for food or no money for rent. And yet he would do it, and and like always, because God is faithful, God would always provide what was needed for him. It's a difficult lesson to learn. But this is exactly what he's talking about when he talks about these things. There was a long-winded preacher who was asked to speak on fundraising for orphans. And um, the person who was organizing the event, he said, Pastor, I know you like to wax eloquently, but here's the thing. The longer you speak, the tighter the purse strings tend to get. And so the pastor did some soul searching, and as he prepared his message, <coughs> he kind of decided to go a different track, and he got up to the podium, and, and he simply opened to Proverbs twenty eight twenty seven, 27, and he, he said this. He said, <clears throat> He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. And then he looked at the attendance there, at this fundraiser, and he said, God has given you the terms. And then he said, you choose as the basket comes around what terms you want. <laughs> Pretty simple. Now you get the impression from the first half of the book of James that James is writing to folks who are suffering, right? Consider it pure joy when you face various trials for the testing of your faith, produce patience. You know, he talks about those who are rich who now are being displaced from their homes and how their miseries are going to come upon them, those, the difficulty that they're going to face. And, and so you kind of get this idea that he's writing to these 12 tribes that are scattered, those <coughs> who are scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution. But reading this, you kind of get a different impression, like he's talking to a whole different audience. So what is it? Well, my, my thought is, is the way he's doing is he's writing to those who are scattered, but he's also writing to those within the church, because, of course, Christians were all over the Roman Empire by that time, and wherever they would go, these, these Christians who were running for their lives and, and seeking refuge would find refuge amongst Christians who lived in different places around the Roman Empire. And what was happening, as often does happen, when somebody is in desperate need and you have something for them, you kind of are in, a, in a, a good place to take advantage of that person. Because if they're desperate, then you can get your, your fields mowed for half price than what you normally pay the regular person who mows them because these guys are desperate. And this is what was happening. And so James isn't just writing to those who were scattered abroad, but he's also writing to those whom they were scattered to. And he's saying, hey, you guys need to make sure that you're taking care of the people who are around you as well. In verse 6, he says, you have, um, you have condemned, <coughs> you have murdered the just, and he uses the definite article, so he's, you could actually translate the just one. He does not resist you. So he reminds him of something very important. He, he's saying, you know, with all that you have and all that you are holding on to, you have to remember that it was the nation of Israel, it was the Jewish people who murdered who, who said, crucify him, and murdered their Messiah. And you are, in a sense, guilty by association. Whether you were there chanting, crucify him, crucify him, or if you were just one of those who would, would, would have been there. And yet, even though you were guilty, he still, once you came to him by faith, he still forgave all of your sins. He didn't resist you. You know, think about that in your own life, all the things you did against God, all the things you did to run from God, <clears throat> all the sin that you committed, and yet not even, not even with any consideration for his own well-being, Jesus died upon the cross for all of your sins. And even though your sin sent him to that cross, he opens his arms and he says, come in and be saved. Such grace, such, such blessing and all he's saying here is that when you think about what Jesus has done for you, think about the people around you and do the same for them. Open your heart and give blessings to those people too. And so number four, the last thing, is not fixing our eyes on this world, but fixing our eyes on the sky, or on Jesus. Verse 7, he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it, it receives the early and the latter rain. If we're going to live forever, we need to be patient. We're going to live for forever, rather. We need to be patient. We need to learn to wait. And we need to learn to watch. Jesus is looking for the late fruit as well as he he was the early fruit. He, he's letting the, the, the latter rain fall so that a late crop can come in. You know, I think we can get impatient when it comes to the Lord coming back, right? I mean, have you ever, have you ever been that, like, why didn't the Lord come back? You know, why, why do we have to keep going through this? And maybe we even lose, lose heart and say, well, maybe the Lord isn't going to come back. And we get impatient. No, why is the Lord patient? He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's why he's patient. And think about it. What if he would have come back 10 years ago? Would you have been on the bus? What about 20 years ago? What about 30 years ago? What about 40 years ago? I mean, they said 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 88. If Jesus would have come back in 88, would you have been on that bus? I wouldn't have. I didn't get safe till 92. The Lord is patient. As long as he knows that, that people are going to get saved, he's waiting for that latter fruit that's coming from the latter rain, that bumper crop, and you're part of that bumper crop. And so just like Jesus is patient, we need to be patient and wait on the Lord, and walk, but, but not lose heart waiting on the Lord. Keep looking for him. If Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, I mean, would, if you knew that Jesus was going to come back in a week, would you live your life any differently? Or would you live your life the same way that you've been living it? That's a good question to ask. Verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So that there's going to be a day that Jesus is going to come back for his church. He's going, to take, he's going to come back for the church and he's going to bring judgment upon the earth. Now, he comes to us as a bride, right? He doesn't overtake us as a thief. He comes to us as a bride. He comes to the world as a snare. He comes to the world as a thief. Right, And, and so we, we have a very different relationship with the Lord. We're to watch and wait and to be patient. The Lord's going to come back to us as a bride. And, and the way I read my Bible, it's going to happen that there's going to be the rapture of the church. Seven years that God has promised to Israel in Daniel chapter 9 that he's going to fulfill his promises to Israel. The first half will be called the, the beginning of sorrows. The second half is the Jacob's trouble or, or the day of tribulation, the great tribulation. And and He's going to fulfill His promise. And during that seven years, all of Israel will be saved. And then after that seven years, we're going to come back with Him and he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth. He's going to bring the nations together as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to cast the goats in the lake of fire. And then those who are, are there that made it through the tribulation, that seven-year period of hell on earth, they made it through, they're going to inherit the kingdom along with the Jews who got saved during all, all of Israel will be saved during that time. And they will inherit the kingdom and repopulate the earth. And we, for a thousand years, will rule and reign with Christ. But then after the thousand years is up, Satan will be released one more time, and he will deceive the nations. Why? Well, because there will be many people who were born during that time that never knew what it was like to live in this world, where there's a choice between sin and, and, and God and, and evil and good. And, and they'll, they'll grow up in that paradise of a world, and then Satan will come out, and he'll shine his lights in their eyes and say how wonderful he's going to be, and they'll follow him. A lot of people will follow him. And they'll come up, up against Christ. And he will cast them into the lake of fire. That's going to be the end of that. That's that's how that's all going to end. And then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Great white throne judgment. Everybody's cast in the lake of fire. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. That's as far as we know. But in the meantime, as we wait for those things to unravel, as we're certain that they will, he says, establish your hearts. This word establish means to turn resolutely your heart toward God, to draw near to God. In the meantime, draw near to God. And we feel the time is short. But even if we're not near the rapture, maybe your time is short. You know, you don't know if, if you pulled out here onto Idaho Boulevard that a logging truck would come and just wipe you off this earth. I mean, it could happen, right? As, as the poets um, if, uh, of uh, audio adrenaline said. It could happen at home. It could happen at school. It could happen while you're rapping like a rapping fool. <laughs> if a DC-10 fell on your head and you're laying on the ground all messy and dead or a Mack truck ran over you or you suddenly die in your Sunday poo, do you know where you're going to go? Right? True poetry. We don't know, do we? We don't know what, what, our, what our time is. It could be short, it could be long. We don't know. C.T. Studd used to say, and I'll close with this, he said, one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's, especially in a time like this, Lord, it's easy to, to wonder what's going to happen in our lives, in our country, in our world. With so many things happening right now, Lord, no greater time to fix our gaze on you, Lord, to draw near to you. So grant us, Lord, repentance. Grant us um, a a closeness to you, Lord, that you would draw us in, Lord. And that our hearts would, would be burning to draw near to you, Lord. And we know that you won't resist us, just as you say. Lord, it's our sin that put you on the cross, but you do not turn us away when we come to you by faith. And so we come to you now, Lord, asking for your grace. Asking for the filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Asking for a a renewed mind that has our, our hearts and our minds set on things above and not on things of this earth. Lord, that we would remember that you are our life and our length of days. We not forget you. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me?